Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and we're pre-recording this episode for September 26th. In studio with me here at Full Headquarters is Full.com contributor Dan Klein. Good to see you, buddy. Hey, Vince. Nice to see you. Um, I know you had to grapple with the storm recently, <laughs> and I'm glad you got through everything safely and that you could fly into Alexandria this week to check in with us. So really happy to have you here. A very, very tense week, but uh, you know, no no major damage. Everybody okay. So as good as can be hoped for. Yep, that's, that's what's important, right? So there have been some interesting, uh, and in one instance, kind of puzzling developments in the retail and consumer world this week. So we'll lead off a few those with a few of those stories before we move on to discuss the incoming streaming services from Walt Disney. And first is the story that you pitched to me, and that is the bankruptcy of Toys R Us, the major toy store chain. So this is a private company, but I think it's pretty safe to say that a lot of the challenges that have put pressure on uh, store uh, department stores, restaurants, and other kind of brick and mortar retailers are kind of, are coming into play here too. What's your take? Well, I, I think it's sort of a bigger trend. So the problem Toys R Us has when when I'm a little older than you. When I was a kid, there was nothing better than going to Toys R Us. <laughs> the department stores did not have great toy sections the way Target and and Walmart do now. Sure. So the only place you could see toys was Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. When the newspaper came on Sunday, you looked for a Toys R Us circular, and that became like a comic book. Yeah. Know? And as Toys R Us lost that, as toys became more common, and you know the toy section at a CVS is pretty good now. So it lost some of that destination. And when you add that to the fact that Amazon, Walmart, Target are all cheaper than Toys R Us, all of a sudden, you had this store that has no reason to be. And the big chain, they should have been becoming a destination. They should have been a place you could play games, where you could, you know, kids during the day, little kids could could read books and play with Legos and all these exciting things that toys do. And they completely ignored that and just sort of moved forward exactly as they were and seemed surprised when they had less customers. Well, yeah, in previous episodes, too, Daniel, in your very varied <laughs> career history, um, you know, you've uh, been at a ton of different places, had a ton of different positions. I always love your stories. I ran a toy when store. You managed this big toy store and uh, had experience talk. And you even talked then about how uh, there was an importance to bring people in uh, with the train sets that you talked about that were really sophisticated, very cool, and just to get people in the store, develop some of that traffic. Yeah, anything you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would have Lego build events, or you know, build a model, or classes, or reading time, or. Uh, we'd bring in a Pinewood Derby track because kids build these cars and only get to use them once. So, sure. we'd, you know, so anything you could, and you'd have to accept. I'm going to generate some foot traffic that all they want is the free stuff mm-hmm. and maybe some advice, and they're going to buy at Amazon or Toys R Us or, or wherever is cheapest. I had all the competitors within two miles, but if you cultivate a customer base by being special, by being something different, people are going to buy from you. So, you know, we we've talked about we we had Magic the Gathering cards, which Toys R Us sells, but Toys R Us doesn't play the game. Mm-hmm. So if a kid is playing, when he comes in, he's very likely to buy a pack or two, or even if he doesn't, he's going to buy a candy bar or a soda or whatever else you might have. And Toys R Us has not done anything to court that audience. They don't even do a lot of like 
midnight openings to sell, you know, when the new Star Wars toys come out or whatever. It, mm-hmm. And they say they're going to do that. Their their turnaround plan includes that. And they were absolutely constrained by the fact that they had so much debt, they couldn't invest a lot yep. in their stores or even justify, we're going to take this out of the box and show it to someone. Sure. But they have to go back and give a reason for people to be there because if I'm going to go on price, Amazon has it, it's cheaper, and I'm done. Yeah, we've talked about uh, similar kind of trends. Uh, in recent episodes, too, where sometimes it's not a, about having the right inventory at your store to move a lot of merchandise, but to bring people in, kind of build a little bit of that loyalty and connection to your brand, and that can be uh, enough to cultivate, as you said, that that customer base, that core customer base that you need. Yeah, I mean, I found that most customers, once I connected with them, so if you saw someone coming in week after week, even if they were just browsing, and you chatted with them, and there was eventually a relationship, when a birthday came around or Christmas, they would shop with us. Mm-hmm. So you have to accept that if you have a really cool toy store, whether it be a Toys R Us or, or where I used to run, people are going to come in and not buy anything because there's no occasion for them to buy a toy. And you have to support that and still make it fun, and then eventually you'll get their business. Uh, a little bit of background for Toys R Us, because um, you touched on a few things that I think uh, ended up becoming a bit of a one-two punch for the company. Uh, so, in the past few decades, you know, Toys R Us was, for me too, when I was a kid, basically the, the leading toy store to go to. And now they're, uh, you know, they filed for bankruptcy protection. Uh, the biggest competition, I feel like, in you know, call it 15, 20 years ago, was more from the their fellow big box stores. Think a Walmart, for example, and you know, Walmart was able to grab market share. And a big thing, part of that, I think, was a combination of you know, they offer very low prices, obviously the price competition side of it, but also you make the trip to buy toys for your kids easier by having it being a part of your huge and big box store Walmart, experience. Walmart and Target have traditionally used toys as a loss leader. To the point that when I ran the toy store, I would go buy certain games at Target because it was cheaper (laughs) than I could buy them at pretty big quantities from the supplier. And you're right. If I'm a parent, and I am a parent, and I want to go grocery shopping, there was about two years where where the price of a Hot Wheel, which is 97 cents, a Hot Wheels car, would get me through a shopping trip. If my son was good, he got to pick out a car. Mm -hmm. That was worth it to me. And it made Target a very valuable destination over a supermarket. Absolutely. From the early 2000s, that was, I feel like, the main... uh, the main comp- the competitive push for them. And then in 2005, uh, it's important to know that the company was taken private by a group of uh, private equity firms and a real estate developer. Um, they paid $7 billion to take Toys R Us private. And they wanted to apply kind of the usual formula in a deal like this, where they close underperforming stores, they cut costs, they streamline the operations. And I believe they did see some early success uh, in those first couple years after 2005, where they saw they had the top line grow over 20%, profitability was expanding. Um, and here's the part where I actually experienced personally was after they filed for an IPO in 2010, uh, the deal was really never able to pick up steam after the financial crisis, and comparable store sales were starting to weaken. And I worked in the banking industry at this time. I remember seeing Toys R Us and their IPO um, in the upcoming offerings that we'd look at, and it always had a TBD or to be determined in the timeline. And as we know, in 2013, the company ended up withdrawing that IPO. And funny enough, again last year, there were reports in the news that after over a decade with these private equity firms tied up in Toys R Us, they haven't been able to kind of harvest their investment. They were thinking that 2017 might be the year for them. But obviously, the results have uh, 
not come out the way they wanted to, and that's fallen by the wayside again. And the problem has been when you have a heavy load of debt and you're just trying to to stay open. The reason the bankruptcy filing came now is rumors of the bankruptcy filing got out, and a lot of their suppliers said we want cash. So heading into the and Sears has had the same problem. Yes, heading into the holiday season. You know, I don't know which suppliers, but let's say they call up Hasbro and say, "Yeah, we want you know this fifty million dollars worth of inventory." They're saying, "Well, we want thirty-five million down," mm-hmm. and that becomes even if your operations are doing okay, you don't have the cash for that. Mm-hmm. So they're going to come back from this mostly because the toy companies are going to be forgiving because they want Toys R Us as an outlet. Yep. But hopefully for them, this frees up some capital. To combine some Toys R Us and Babies R Us locations, that's part of the plan. So, in places where they're not operating side by side, to put Babies R Us in with Toys R Us, and to make Toys R Us locations the interactive destination. I still don't think I love their plan there. They're not doing enough to cater to the sort of hardcore toy gamer adults teenager type who buys the collectibles and all the the $60 board games where they could really stand out, um, where Barnes & Noble has a niche but hasn't done that well. But they do seem to be earmarking about, I think it's $290 million in capital to make some of those changes, which is money they couldn't spend under the current pre-bankruptcy setup. Yeah, and that is the problem. Uh, You mentioned they had five to $6 billion of debt on their balance sheet all these years, and your annual interest payments for that Coming out to four hundred million dollars or more—that is a lot tied up in those payments and unable, leaving management really very little uh, to be able to reinvest in the business and kind of grow it as you know the conditions in terms of competition came in. Um, but our next story, we have the unlikely partnership between Kohl's and Amazon. So there are two parts to this, and we can hit them one at a time. So first. There was the announcement that Kohl's would test some store-within-a-store concepts that featured Amazon smart home products in a small number of their stores. and These are 1,000-square-foot spaces launching in October, so they'll feature the well-known products like the Echo, the Fire TV, the Fire Tablets, all in an interactive space, right? like we've been talking (laughs) about. And Amazon sales associates will actually staff that space. So, Dan, to me, this seems like keep your friends close but your enemies closer kind of thing? I love this. Because if you if you look at the retailers that have turned it around, I would say Best Buy is probably the most implausible turnaround. Sure. A few years ago, Best Buy was left for dead. And what they did is they invited Microsoft, Samsung, the cell phone providers, Apple, to build, to varying degrees, these store-within-a-store concepts. Mm-hmm. And instead of Best Buy being this vague place full of electronics, it became a place to go for expertise, for hands-on products, for your your kid to get to play the video game you're not going to buy, or all. So it became <laughs> a very, you know, it became a destination. And you've seen J.C. Penney is not doing as well as as Best Buy, but it's certainly doing better than Sears. And part of that is Sephora stores and the salon and the picture taking and all the different store within a store concepts. So on that level, I like this partnership. Um, Okay. Well, let's get to the second part of it. All right. So that's the first part, which seems okay. Uh, and most recently, Kohl's announced that they're also going to be accepting returns for Amazon orders at almost 100 locations. So a bigger test for them, and that means that you can take your Amazon order to a Kohl's and return it like you bought the product, the merchandise there. And Kohl's will actually pack it up and ship it back for you. And there's no details yet that I could find as to how the kind of the compensation will work for Kohl's in offering this service. But 
in the way I see it for Kohl's itself, you know, their comparable sales have been negative three the past four years. And um, it hasn't reduced its footprint and closed a ton of stores like some of the other department stores have. They're adding stores. But you... It seems like these are their ba- some uh, examples of initiatives for them where they're really trying to find ways to boost traffic. I this scares me, and we've talked a little bit about the fox in, a, in the hen house. Sure. And there's an aspect where if Coles and Amazon have not discussed where this might go, then I question it. You know, because the the history, and we talked about this earlier, of companies letting Amazon in. Yeah. Toys R Us being a big example. Mm-hmm. They they. They had they managed Amazon managed the Toys R Us website, which literally just redirected to Amazon, and there was a lawsuit, and it was a fifty-one million dollar settlement. But it derailed Toys R Us in the digital end. You could argue the same thing for a few other companies, but I don't think that's what's happening here. Kohl's a few months back said it was going to reduce the the retail footprint of its stores to increase the back end to allow for more omni-channel delivery, meaning they were going to act as their own warehouses and not just supply stores, but also supply online orders. And if this is the first step of a cozier relationship, maybe a purchase or maybe just Kohl's stocking all the new Amazon apparel lines, that might be a positive driver. As just a traffic move where I bring my Amazon return and walk into a Kohl's, I don't buy that Kohl's has enough impulse items or that I'm going to be like, you know what? I do need a new suit. Even all the way at the back of the store, walking through all those aisles. I don't think Kohl's sells the right (laughs) merchandise for that. Mm -hmm. I think they mostly sell merchandise that you plan for. Now, if they were to add a section of impulse buys, you know, like uh, at the front of Marshall's or at the front of uh, Bed Bath & Beyond and as seen on TV products, (laughs) that doesn't feel like the Kohl's brand. So, just getting more people in, unless they're getting well paid by Amazon, which I don't think they are. But if this is the beginning of Kohl's and Amazon sort of working back and forth, I could see some levels on the fulfillment end where Amazon could help with the Kohl's product and where all these new Amazon you know, branded lines would do very well from having a physical display in, a, in an 1,100-store chain. chain. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, important, too, that you, what you brought up in terms of how they're shink, uh, shrinking excuse me, the uh, floor space for their actual merchandise and uh, dedicating more of that for their back-end fulfillment. And you know, the company said, I think, uh, their fulfillment for online orders is over 30% now directly from their stores. So that's obviously uh, progress that they're seeing in that initiative. Um, but overall, some of the people who I've seen uh, who are more bullish on this partnership with these two different initiatives, um, they've kind of spoken to the massive customer base that Amazon has and the potential, uh, whether or not that pans out to uh, to boost traffic. And, and at the same time, uh, you know, you mentioned the fox in the hen house kind of story here, and we have a, another fool.com contributor, Jeremy Bowman. So he, you know, he's much more bearish on this idea, and he mentioned a few examples like Toys R Us, but also Borders and Target, companies that took the partnership with Amazon initially. Um, probably none of them are looking back on that collaboration, praising what a good idea it was. But we'll have to see. The last part of this story then that. You uh, spoke about very, very briefly, but coal shares are up over 10% in September so far as a result uh, of this news. Um, and there are some there's some talk potentially of this being the courting process for the two companies. Um, I'm kind of curious what you think after so quickly and so soon after the Whole Foods buy it, if that is really something investors should be taking seriously at all. Here's the thing. I think Amazon is kicking the tires. I think Amazon management is very key, and they clearly very quickly believed in the Whole Foods management. Uh, 
I think they are trying to figure out if Kohl's has a team that they could integrate. Because having a physical retail presence in apparel, an area where they have marked for growth, is, you know, I don't, yes, they have the look and, and some new techniques, but I still don't think the average man is going to buy a dress shirt or woman is going to buy, you know, a dress or a pantsuit without trying it on, without mm-hmm. the ability. Now, I might buy the second one. Like, if, you know, I own the shirt, I bought it at Kohl's, and I actually think I bought it at JCPenney. But, I would buy another one digitally, but sure. I'm not going to buy the first one because yeah. you have to get the sizing right. Mm-hmm. Same troops, sneakers, hats, whatever. Whatever it may be, yep. I think Amazon sees the potential of that just like it saw Whole Foods as a way into groceries. And I think they're considering it, but I think bidding up the stock because of that is way too early. Mm-hmm. So we have to wait then until the next quarterly report, most likely from Kohl's, which is coming out in November, where hopefully management will kind of share some initial takeaways from this partnership, how things are going. Um, but support for industry focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right message for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash full, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. For our last topic, we have the House of Mouse. <laughs> if there, uh, In my opinion, if there's any company out there that can lean on its content library to create a competitive major streaming service, I do believe it's Walt Disney. And... You know they have so much content that they're actually planning on two services. So uh, one is pulling from ESPN sports content. The other is built around Disney's film and television properties. Um, Dan, we uh, before we dive into the details, kind of what we know about these services and maybe what is driving this kind of evolution in terms of the company strategy. Can you give us just an idea of some of the challenges the company's been facing? They're trying to address with this. So, the big challenge facing Disney is that the cable universe is shrinking, and ESPN is by far the channel that gets the most per subscriber. It's almost eight dollars. They don't release the numbers, so there's different estimates, but it's around eight dollars per subscriber. So, every time the cable universe loses a million households, that's a million times $8 that they've lost. And the cable universe itself has shrunk since about 2012 by somewhere between 5 and 6 million subscribers, depending exactly how you look at the data, because Mm -hmm. some of those people have the digital streaming skinny bundles. So, for Disney, you're seeing a world where younger people aren't getting cable. And if they ever do get cable, they may not want to spend for channels they don't watch. So the big drain on this, you know, any one little channel that gets a couple of cents or a nickel isn't going to to, to feel it that bad. But ESPN feels it deeply, and they've lost about 13 million, 12, 13 million. Yeah, from million. a peak of 100 million uh, just a few years ago now to below 88 million. So you're right on point right. there. So. Then the challenge for ESPN is they have huge fixed costs. If you're, um, you know, your typical MTV and you lose a million subscribers, well, maybe you just cancel a show and you you run some old programming. More reality TV. You you, you know, <laughs> MTV Two still runs Martin reruns. I don't know who's watching those. Sure. You, you you repackage old stuff and call it classic. There's lots of ways to do cheap programming. ESPN is committed in rights deals. It's something like $11 billion a year in rights deals. For all the various sports. $2 billion alone for for the NFL. Sure. So, as those deals come up, it has the option of either not renewing them, 
bidding them lower, but maybe losing them to a rival, and then lowering its costs. But it can't lower its costs in the short term in any appreciable way. So it has to figure out how to cut costs, which we've seen them cut staff. Sure. And we've seen them cut staff with with five-year contracts just so they could take the hit all in one quarter, even though they're still paying those people. Mm-hmm. And really, for them, they have to figure out a way to bring out bring more revenue. In. And if anything, we've seen the value and the price tags for some of these uh, sports-related streaming rights only go up over time. Phenomenally so, especially because you have non-traditional media companies also bidding for them. When you got Facebook throwing in their hat, Twitter too, it, it only raises the prices. You might see some peripheral sports, maybe NASCAR will take a hit. Maybe UFC won't get the deal their their new buyers hope to get. But there will always be two bidders for the NFL. Yeah. You know, if if ESPN lets that deal go, I don't see maybe the NFL will have to package it between Facebook and Twitter and a network or do something. Sure. But they're going to get their 1.9 billion for that uh, that Monday night package. If not more than that. If not more than that. Yeah. So uh, going to these services specifically, then we have this kind of context and background of what the company is facing off against and how they're trying to um, to head that off. The ESPN service will make its debut in early 2018. Spring is what I've heard, and initially it will be limited to sports content for baseball, hockey, soccer, tennis, and college sports. And that's about 10,000 live events a year that are not currently available to uh, pay TV ESPN subscribers. And I feel like management's been very sensitive to making it clear that it wouldn't be kind of abandoning, abandoning its traditional pay TV partners, including the cable companies and the satellite providers. So the ESPN uh, streaming service will... Uh, there's been a big focus on the mobile side of things and the app. So they say that the content will be accessible through the ESPN app, which already exists. It has news, scores, things like that. But then they'll also expand so that you know ESPN content that tra- traditional cable subscribers have, they'll be able to see all of that on the app as well once it's authenticated. And the most notable thing for me, though, kind of looking out even farther or further, is a quote I found from Bob Iger. It's something he said during his presentation at a Bank of America conference earlier this month. And it's a decent length quote, but just bear with me. He says, over time, I think the way we have to look at this is this will be a sports marketplace platform. Think what iTunes is, for instance, where you'll be able to go to the platform and actually buy almost on an a la carte basis a sport, a sporting event, a season, a league, maybe a conference, as a for instance, you'll be able to pick and choose over time what it is you want. It won't necessarily be a one-size-fits-all. We may launch it that way, but the goal eventually is to create something that the sports fan can essentially use to design what their sports media experience can be. What he describes here is exactly what I hear people describe all the time when they talk about their ideal pay TV package, because they want to pick what networks networks yeah, the, they pay the, for. The, the problem is rights. So let's just take yeah, exactly. Football. Let's just take the National Football League. The National Football League has an exclusive deal with DirecTV for uh, over a billion dollars, I don't know the exact amount, Mm -hmm. for Sunday ticket. Every time that deal comes up to bid, DirecTV will bid whatever it takes to get it. So, all of a sudden, you're offering this everything sports package, but it doesn't have NFL. (laughs) And oh, by the way, NBC and Comcast have the rights to the National Hockey League, a niche sport with a diehard fan base that would absolutely pay for out-of-market games. So, now there's no NHL. ESPN only has part of the baseball package and part of the NBA package. So, is it going to be able to get its partners, Fox and and the Turner channels in in the various sports, to agree to some sort of ESPN-led? These are very difficult. Yeah. You know, 
things like WWE already has a network. UFC already has a network. So creating this marketplace where like for a, a, a better than a la carte price, there's a lot of wrangling that there, has to it, happen. It becomes a massive, absolutely massive negotiation between a ton of different parties, competitors. It's definitely a goal that's way out ahead. And ABC, you said it right up the top. They are the Disney, they are the only company that has the content to launch a Netflix, a Hulu rival. Mm -hmm. The problem is this plan of having a sports app and an entertainment app. If a family, if for $9.99 a month, I could get the equivalent of what ESPN has, plus all the Disney kids programming, plus all the Disney Marvel programming, with the possible exception of the, the Netflix shows, which I don't know what the rights are behind those, that's something I might pay for. You're going to hit all ages in the family, the sports fan. It's going to be you might pay twelve ninety nine a month for that. But you start splitting those up, even if they're only six ninety nine or seven ninety nine or whatever the number is, it becomes less a draw. And as an adult, I think it's maybe harder for me to justify ten dollars a month for something only I watch if it's sports than it is to buy something that the whole family is going to use. Okay, so uh, let's move on to the second service. So we've covered a little bit of the ESPN sports side. Uh, the second service isn't expected until 2019. And to be, and, uh, to be clear, the pricing for both of these services has not yet been disclosed. Right. That probably won't come around until early next year. And uh, 2019, I think, is the timeline for this service because that's when the company ends its current agreement with Netflix. So remember that Netflix and Disney originally signed a deal in late 2012, making Netflix the exclusive uh, streaming home for a lot of Disney content, including the new releases from 2016 to 2018. Of course, once that rolls out or once that uh, finishes, 2019, Disney will roll out its Disney branded service. Um, so once uh, Disney has that streaming control in 2019, um, the company will also be producing lots of new content for the service as well. Again, from that conference, uh, Iger spoke about uh, films and TV shows. He said four or five live action films, four to five TV series, and three to four television movies are already in production or planned for the service specifically. And he also added that the Marvel and Star Wars films, initially not sure if those were going to be included as part of the Disney branded uh, streaming package, they now will be for sure. So, in total, about 400 to 500 films and about 7,000 episodes of TV will be available through this service. Again, I think that just reinforces just how much content this company <laughs> can leverage when they want, when they're ready to roll something out like this. And I, I think what's been overplayed is the Star Wars and Marvel movies, because the reality is, to the adult male who's the demographic for those. <laughs> I'm seeing the Thor movie the day it comes out, and I'm seeing the Star Wars movie after waiting in line for two days the night it comes yeah, out. Yeah, but this is for all the rewatches, I guess. <laughs> I think the Disney Family Library is what's most valuable, mm -hmm. and what's it's those new television shows. So Disney has very carefully not done a live-action Star Wars show. And they have all sorts of cartoons and Star Wars and Marvel, and they've, they've got some of the Marvel brand extensions on ABC. But think about the power of them saying we're doing the first ever live-action Star Wars television show. You think this is like them saving a little bit of Absol power? Absolutely. That, that's what they're doing. And I, I, 
if you look at the Disney deal with Netflix, the value is not that I could watch The Force Awakens eight months after it came out in the theater or whatever the timeline is. The value is is Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage. Now, those shows may continue on Netflix. It hasn't been cleared. But the ability to exploit those universe, I'll watch any show starring a Marvel character. I will watch <laughs> Ant-Man read the phone book. It, it's fine. That So, I think that's where Disney can really leverage. And then you add in all the timeless kids programming, aside from the old racist ones they can't show anymore. (laughs) 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 You know, Speedy Gonzalez, just now he's a universal character. But, you know, a lot of characters, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, those resonate, and little kids will watch stuff over and over again. So there's a huge library, and they can tie you and I in with just one or two gotta-see shows. Absolutely. And they've talked about how important the kids' audience is for them with a streaming package in general. Um, Netflix, I think that was a big point of attraction for them when they originally signed this deal uh, back in 2012. So, uh, last thing I want to bring up uh, regarding this whole um, this whole push from Disney has to do with BamTech. So, Bamtech is kind of the technological foundation that allow that is going to power Disney streaming services. Um, the company started as a project from Major League Baseball, and Disney acquired a 33% stake of Bamtech a few years ago, and it's chosen to invest another billion plus dollars to take an extra 40% stake, a controlling stake, given how important the delivery infrastructure will be for what amounts to hopefully millions of streaming subscribers once they launch the services. The thing, the takeaway I had here. For this was just it seems like that initial 33% investment, kind of seeing the potential there, investing in that technology, and Disney's kind of been preparing itself for this move, kind of hedging its bets. And I'm not surprised at all that Iger has been behind all these decisions, considering you know the way he's led the company the past in the past. The interesting piece about BamTech is as Disney makes all these moves, they have partners. They're the foundation, for example, for WWE's network. So, are we going to see a situation like Amazon is finding, where some of its rivals no longer want to use its technology? <laughs> that they don't break down revenue for BamTech, so I don't know how much mm-hmm. it gets from that. But having a good foundation, I mean, you know, if you're getting a streaming service and it works, you're going to keep it. If you go to log in to watch, you know, the uh, the, the the recent boxing pay per view, and you've spent your your sixty dollars or ninety dollars, ninety dollars, yeah, ninety dollars to watch uh, Mayweather McGregor, hundred dollars to watch Mayweather McGregor, and you were one of those people who bought it digitally and it didn't play, you are not going to try that again mm-hmm. for a very long time. It doesn't matter what they give you back. You missed the fight everyone was talking about. It would be the same thing if Disney launched a streaming service. And your three-year-old couldn't watch Cars 2, you don't have a three-year-old, but pretend you did, couldn't watch Cars 2, which is the only thing that they will put them to sleep at the moment, you will cancel. The execution does need to be Very important. So, we'll be following this, uh, following along with this story uh, as, for example, uh, early next year, once we have more details about the ESPN service, once it launches, and as we get more details about the Disney branded service as well. But, Dan, thanks a lot for coming in. It's great having you. Thanks for having me. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So, don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening, and Fool on.